In the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, we are presented with God's wonderful plan through the death and resurrection of Jesus to save for himself a diverse family of saints who are being transformed by Jesus to live like Jesus. This is Galatians, God's very good idea. And we are Mercy Village Church, located in Barbersville, West Virginia. And you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. Okay, so I'm going to uh, step out here and kind of show you guys how hip and cool I am. Not really. But uh, if how many of you are aware of what a Yeezy is? Does anybody know what a Yeezy brand shoe is? Are we hip enough for that? Okay, so I was uh, I outdid my wife as far as like understanding style once in my life, and I'm going to share that story with you. Just a couple weeks ago, we were at a birthday party at uh, the Kennedy Center over on Route Two, the pool there, and this guy was walking around in these different looking shoes, and uh, my wife says, "Are those shoes?" And it was a I mean a legit question. Are they supposed to be cool or not? Like she couldn't tell. And she said, what are those? And I said, uh, so those were Yeezy foam runners, which are like uh, $300 off market, I guess, if you, if you try to buy them now. But the more I looked at them, I'm like, that's not the right colorway. This is Kanye West's shoe, by the way, if you're, if you're still lost. Kanye West is, these didn't look like Kanye West's shoes. And so come to find out, and we kind of researched this, Walmart did a knockoff version of the Yeezy Foam Runner, right? So this is Kanye's Croc, by the way. It's like a Croc, but by Kanye's design. That's what these are, these little foam shoes. And so Walmart did a knockoff for $30 instead of $300, because these were like blue with like flames on them. They just didn't really look like Kanye's style. Here's the point, right? I mean, I know that there's nothing, very few things less relevant than shoes. I, I understand that. And in particular, this, this Foam Runner, of course, Walmart was sued. They had to pull these off the shelves. But there's only one Yeezy foam runner. That's the point. And everything else is a knockoff. It's a fake. And when it comes to shoes, right, like, who cares? Unless you're, like, really a collector or whatever. But when it comes to the gospel, authenticity matters. The truth of the gospel matters. But yet, there are still those who would present knockoffs of the true gospel. That's the context of Galatians. That's what's happened here. And, and of far more importance than knockoff shoes, because that doesn't matter, life or death, but the gospel does. And so into this situation where this false gospel and this undermining of the gospel is taking place, Paul sends this letter to the churches of Galatia. We saw last week, and by the way, you can listen to that online uh, if you are curious. And if you miss any of the sermons along the way, you can catch those there as we go through this book verse by verse. Last week, we saw the context of the letter. This week, Paul begins to speak in to that context. And he's going to come out swinging, by the way. But he's in a fight for the soul's and the joy of the people of God. He's not trying to harm the children of God. He's trying to defend the souls and the joy and the lives of the people of God. And so he comes out swinging in verses 6 through 10. And what he's going to show us is that there is no other gospel 
but the gospel of Jesus. And embracing the truth of that gospel is both the beginning of right fear, fear of God, and the end of all other fears is found in this one true gospel. We'll see that played out. He's going to show us that that faith in Jesus is what is required for salvation. And when we embrace and proclaim this gospel, that's the truth. But anything that undermines it is a dangerous lie. So, Father, today, what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please give us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Paul starts out with these words, verses 6 and 7 of Galatians chapter 1. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. See, he's not pulling any punches. He gets right to it. He doesn't waste any time. He he dives right in. Paul is confident that there is only one gospel to embrace as the people of God. He shared a little bit of it back in verses 3 and 5 of Galatians when he said, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he told us who Jesus is, the one who gave himself for our sins, who was sacrificed on the cross on behalf of sinners like you and me to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is the gospel. Ten years after Paul writes this letter, he's going to write another letter to the church at Rome. The difference is He's never been to Rome. So this letter is a lot more robust. It's a lot more filled out. You see, he'd been in the churches of Galatia. He'd preached to them face-to-face in person. But for the church of Rome, he, he writes a letter more in depth. He describes the gospel there as well. Starting in chapter 3, verse 21, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, in particular the law of Moses. Now, what's going to happen in in the churches of Galatia, and we'll get back to this, but people are going to come in who were previously ethnic Jews who followed the Jewish law of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and they're going to say you need to incorporate this into your walk with Christ or you're not truly a Christian. Things like the Sabbath being on Saturday at a specific time and being observed in a specific way, things like diet kosher diet, things like uh, not eating meat that's been offered to idols, which was a thing in that day, things like circumcision. These things have to be uh, lived under, submitted to, for you to be in Christ. But in Romans, Paul says, it's been manifest, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it that the righteousness of God would come through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. For there is no distinction, no lineage, no DNA that, that matters, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet those who believe in Jesus are justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It starts with faith. Our relationship with God starts with faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 27 of the same chapter says, Then what comes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? Can the law of works make us stop boasting? No, the law of works is prone to, to boasting. So we can say, look what I've done. Look at how good I'm doing. But no, it's the law of faith that excludes boasting. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is the explicit gospel that Paul would have proclaimed to the churches in Galatia one by one. And the results were fantastic. If you were to read Acts chapter 13 and 14, you would read of what happened in the churches of Galatia. In Poseidon, there were Jews and Gentiles both repenting of their sin and in faith following after Jesus with rejoicing in their hearts. And Iconium, another uh, area in Galatia, many Jews and Greeks believe in Jesus for salvation. In Lystra, Paul and Barnabas are welcomed kind of in a weird way, as if they're like uh, Greek gods, but it gives them this opportunity to proclaim the gospel there, and many believe. In Derby, they preached the gospel and made many disciples. This was that missionary journey into Galatia where Paul preached the gospel that through faith in Jesus, by the grace of Jesus, salvation comes. Righteousness is brought. Rightness before God is accomplished. That trip was only a year before he wrote this letter. Maybe two, but roughly a year before he writes this letter. And now he's having to respond to what's going on in Galatia. A year before there was revival and miracles and church planting and salvation and that's why Paul's not pulling any punches. You can imagine as Paul hears the reports of what's happening in the churches of Galatia that he becomes a little bit angry. Not angry in a harsh way, a belittling way, a, a condemning way, but angry like a parent would be if their kid kept running out into the street and endangering their own lives. And so he picks up his pen and he begins to write, he uses two Greek words in, in uh, verses 6 and 7 that he doesn't use anywhere else in any of his writings. Because he's being very intentional in what he says. His word for astonished is thamozo, and it is used in all the Gospels. But it's never used by Paul except here. And in all of the Gospels, it's this very particular word for when the people who watched Jesus' ministry performed, they have their breath taken away. They're astonished. They can't wrap their brains around the miracles and the words of Jesus, and so they're absolutely astonished by it. Another word he uses is metatithemy, which is a fun word to say, and it has to do, it is a, the word for deserting. And this word is to turn away from and to give up agreement or a covenant, to turn your back on something you promise to actually turn away from it and replace it with something else. And the people in the churches of Galatia have deserted, turned away from not just a message, but Paul says you've turned away from him who called you. They've turned away from Jesus. You see, Paul doesn't come in 
Paul doesn't come into this defending his own authority, defending his own ego. That's not what this is about. He's defending the word of God and the God of the word. If he was doing this for himself, right? Then uh, his anger would be sinful and, and out of place. His, his aggression would be self-centered, but he's not. He's defending the word of God and the God of the word. By the way, may, may we be marked by the same as, as leaders and representatives of Jesus. That we don't come into any form of ministry trying to defend our own egos or defend our own authority. That's gross. But that when we stand our ground on things, it is the word of God and the truth about Jesus. That we don't, we're not in it for our own, our own ego, our own control. So Paul comes with the truth in love and he points the finger at those who are troubling them. Those who are agitating and disturbing and confusing them by distorting the gospel. They're flipping the gospel over. They're tweaking it to be something else. And, and it's starting to look, look different. Paul will separate these two groups of people throughout the whole letter. Those who are in the churches of Galatia and those who are coming to stir up trouble. The Judaizers want to change faith alone and Jesus alone by grace alone into faith and works and grace and works. And specifically through the Sabbath and diet and circumcision. By the way, these are baptized folks who profess the name of Jesus. These are people who have a long lineage of religious tradition behind them. These are people who could walk to the front of the room and hold up their degrees and they have letters at the end of their name and they may even have, you know, rabbi or whatever in front. They're people who appear to know their stuff, but what the truth is measured against is not their titles or their experience, but it's measured against the Word the word of God. It's measured against the, the truth that has been proclaimed not only by Paul, as we'll see, but by the other apostles and disciples. So these folks have come in to stir up tre- uh, trouble, and they're presenting something that resembles the gospel, but it's a fake, yeezy gospel. It's not the real thing. It might look like it, but it's not the real thing. Not that there is another one. Paul says, there is no other gospel. And because there's no other gospel, there's no other message. So Paul continues, verses 8 and 9, but even if we, he's talking about himself and Barnabas most likely because they'd been the ones together on the first missionary journey. Maybe he's also including the other apostles and those who had, had been there with him as he was writing this letter. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And we have said, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul's language from the start has been very direct. It's not pulling any punches, but it's also been laced with grace and peace. He's actually used those words, grace and peace. To you, grace and mercy. He's uh, emotionally connected to what's happening in the churches of Galatia too. That the people are being troubled. That they as new believers, not yet firmly grounded in their faith, were susceptible to these false teachings. And so he has some sympathy for them in that. But for those who would undermine the gospel, those who would 
lift the name of Christ over their head, but then come and undermine the truth about Christ, he has no chill. He has no live and let live. And so he uses a word, anathema, which is a very harsh word. It's got Old Testament roots in the idea of something being set aside for destruction, for disdain, for, for uh, being loathed and deemed invalid. He says, anyone, even if it were me, even if it were an angel from heaven, were to come to you and undermine the truth of Jesus, let him be set aside for destruction. You see, this is life or death. This has eternity banking on it. This is the reason for his passion. This is why he doesn't have any chill. And, and this is a word for us today, too. That we would be people who proclaim the truth of the gospel, but as a new church plant, as we pursue growth, we may be tempted to fall away from the gospel. We may say, hey, let's just have some feel-good sermons that, that tickle our ears, then maybe more people will roll in here and, and we can really fill it up and the coffers will be full and that'll be great. Or maybe we'll pursue excellence over faithfulness. Maybe we'll pursue consumerism over commitment. Maybe we'll pr pursue style over substance. And in doing that, fall away from the gospel. It's a word of caution towards us that the message stay the same, that the mission stay the same, and the, miss the mission is the presentation of the message. It's not just a word for us. It's a, it's a word for all churches. Philip Ryken talking about how we can so easily slip away from the true gospel of Jesus, describes it like this, our churches. He says, in our churches there is a gospel sometimes of material prosperity, which teaches that Jesus is a way to financial gain, but that's not the true gospel. There is the gospel of family values, and family values matter, but this teaches that Jesus is the way to a happy home, that that's the primary reason that we follow Jesus. That's not the gospel. There's the gospel of the self, which teaches us that if we come to Jesus, then we'll find personal fulfillment. That's not the gospel. There's the gospel of religious tradition, which teaches us that Jesus is the way to respectability. It's not the gospel. There's the gospel of morality, which teaches us that Jesus is the way to be a good person. That is not the gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but we have churches prioritizing getting America back to the way it was and its kind of Christian roots. That's not the gospel. Through political influence, they want to gain that. We have churches that are, that are pro-life churches and woke churches and conservative churches and liberal churches. All these churches known for other things, but not known for the gospel. Social justice churches, health, wealth, and prosperity churches, hip churches, harsh churches. Might we be a church that is known for proclaiming the truth of Jesus. Might that be our calling card, if you will. Might that be our identity as a church. But if we're not careful, it only took the churches in Galatia about a year to 18 months to fall away from that. It could happen even faster to us. Might we guard the gospel? Now, don't get me wrong. The gospel does speak to us. Many of those things I just mentioned, it does speak to justice and life. It does speak to 
politics and health. It does speak to family. All of these things. But it is not any of those things. The gospel is this. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Of which I am certainly counted. Saving us by grace through faith in Jesus. There is no other gospel but this. That's what we proclaim. We proclaim it with our words and we proclaim it with our deeds. Not something else or this plus something else. Nothing else. This is our message. Now here's why it's serious to, to Paul. Not because, again, he's trying to belittle the, the churches in Galatia. He uses this word anathema one other time. I want you to see the heart of Paul here. He's writing to the church in Rome and he's talking about all the people who are ethnic Jews who will not come to faith in Jesus and his heart is broken. Broken. He says this, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I would wish that I myself were anathema. That I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and sisters and my kinsmen according to the flesh. You see, Paul is in anguish. Paul is passionate, not out of defending his own authority or his own uh, message or his own ego. He is broken for the people. He is pleading with them to return to the gospel. With anguish in his heart, he longs for their joy. He longs for their freedom. And our final verse for today speaks to that freedom. That there's freedom in what Paul has experienced, which is to live before an audience of one. And he says it like this, verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Here's the point he's making. Graciously, he says, I am free. I, the Apostle Paul, am free from the fear of man. I'm not living to please man. I'm not living uh, for the respect of man, for the honor of man, but I am living to please God. I use the term fear of man because it's a, it's a term that you'll read from d different Christian authors to describe us when we're in a place in our Christian walk where we actually fear the opinions, the thoughts, the worldviews of mankind around us more than we fear God and His Word and His promises and His instructions for us. That's where that term comes from. And, and He's not free from fear, but He's free from the fear of man. He's not free from living to please someone, but now He's living to please God instead of please mankind around Him. You see, you have two basic options. You can live in the fear of God, or you can live in the fear of mankind. You can live to please God, or you can live to please mankind. And Paul is convinced that because of the truth of the gospel, which he is calling the people in Galatia to, that we live before an audience of one. You're made 
to live before God, not mankind. Hear me today, you will find no satisfaction, none in the fear of mankind. You will find infinite satisfaction in the fear of God. You were not made to live for social media likes. You were not made to live for influence in your community. You were not made to live for acceptance by the world. You were not made to have a home that looks like Joanna Gaines so that everybody in your life can applaud you. That's not what you were made for. You weren't made to have a body that looks in some certain way so that everyone will give you affirmation. And on and on we could go with all the things that we live for, that we seek affirmation in. You were made for none of them. You were made... Not to conform to the standards of the world or the fads of the world or the beliefs of the world. You weren't made to live in submission to what the world says about whatever prominent topic there is in society right now. You were made to live your life before God in Jesus. Augustine, the great Ethiopian bishop, said this, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. That's who you were made for. That's what you were made for. You were made to submit to the way of Jesus and be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. To conform to his ways and to his wisdom. You were made for the righteousness of God in Christ. Fear of mankind will lead to elastic measurements of morality. It's always changing. What the world says about this or that will always be changing, which will in turn lead to a roller coaster of, of emotions and responses in your life. But the fear of God will lead to the truth of the gospel, which leads you to Jesus. And in Jesus, you stand before God, righteous, loved, seen, known. You were not made to live before the audience of mankind. You were made to live before the audience of one. And hear me today. Whatever audience you choose to live before, you choose to live by the standards of mankind, it will not change which audience you should live before. You can live your whole life before the audience of mankind, and in the end, you will still be judged before the audience of one. If you've seen, like, America's Got Talent, right? In those early stages, it's the judges who are deciding who goes on. But pre-COVID and post-COVID, there was still an audience there behind everyone watching these tryouts. And as the performers would perform, right, the laughter of the audience had to feel good or the applause of the audience had to feel good. But at the end of their performance, it was irrelevant what the audience thought. What mattered is what those judges on that panel set before the audience thought. Did what they do please those judges? Everything else was irrelevant, and we have to ask ourselves, will our lives please the judge, the audience of one? If you're in Christ, then when the judge looks at you, he sees what Jesus has done. Not what you have done, but what Jesus has done. Colossians 3, 3. 
Paul writing to the church of Colossae, for you have died, this is to Christians, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is where we find ourselves as the children of God, hidden in Christ. And I need that. Because it's the very next thing I want to read to you. Eric Watkins, writing about what it, it looks like to be hidden in Christ, he says, we ought to, to be deeply pierced in our hearts that in order for God's uh, just judgment to pass by sinners like me and sinners like you, it has to find Jesus. That's what it means to be hidden with Christ. At the cross, the full unbridled wrath of God came down upon Jesus. And in that moment of judgment, there was nowhere for Jesus to hide. He was on the cross. There were no fig leaves or shade trees for him to hide behind. There was no mercy, no grace, no compassion. Jesus for us is exposed to the all-consuming expression of sin's cruelty and the wrath of God. And none of his friends came to defend him. They'd fled. No lamb was offered in his place. No one negotiated for his release. He was clothed in our shame. He was crowned with our thorns. He was exposed to the judgment of God that we deserve. Jesus, because of that, becomes our hiding place. Outside of Christ, there is no safe place to hide, but being found in Christ, there is peace and safety, which is why we sing, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, I will hide myself in Thee. That's why we sing, Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just was satisfied to look at Him, Jesus, and pardon me. So which audience we live for? We live for the audience of mankind with their elastic measurements and measuring tape of morality, their changing definitions of success and goodness, or for the audience of one. God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who in grace gave Jesus so that we in Jesus might stand before the audience of one, not His wrath directed at us, but His gaze of kindness and love. This is why Paul's so worked up. This is why Paul is so passionate as he writes to the Galatian churches. His plea is singular and passionate, and it is the same for us today. Return to the gospel. Whatever in your life right now is distracting you from the gospel, whatever in your life right now you are looking to to define who you are, just stop it, right? By the grace of God, by the power of God, not in your own strength, but in His power, turn to the gospel. Find your meaning there, your definition there. Grace, faith. Jesus, this is life or death. There's no other gospel but the gospel of Jesus alone. And when we embrace this, we can live in fear of a kind and loving God and stop living in fear of mankind. If you don't know Jesus, if you're not a Christian, trust Jesus today. Galatians 2.20 says this. These words are for you. Today, move my rocks. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You can be justified before God today through faith in Jesus Christ. The power to live righteously and the power to be declared righteous before God is found through faith in Jesus. Trust Him today. And for those of us who are the children of God, there's one gospel. Might we own it? My plea today is that we would own the truth of the gospel in our lives from top to bottom. Every area of our life would be touched and impacted and transformed by the truth of the gospel. And if you want to know the truth of the gospel, your best source is going to be this book among the people of God. So pick it up. Read it. Pray it. Sing it. Speak about it. Might we be creatures of the Word, committed to the Word of God. Read the Bible. I'm serious. Some of us believe the lie that this isn't worth our time. We would never say it, but we live it. I live that way sometimes. You live that way sometimes as if this book is not worth your time. Another lie we believe is, is that we can't understand it. I can't understand the Bible, but like Matt Chandler says, God's put the cookies on the bottom shelf. They're there to be picked up and known, and the Holy Spirit is with you to help you understand the Word of God. So own the truth of the gospel through the Word of God. It is my prayer, right? If nothing else, if you haven't picked up your Bible in months to read it, that you would commit today to one thing at a minimum, that every morning when you wake up, you would pray, God, set a fire in my heart to read your word. You pray that every day for a month and see what happens. See what God does. Let's own it. There's one message. Let's guard it. Let's guard it in our own hearts. The truth of the gospel against all the other messages of the world. May we guard our hearts and guard the gospel in our hearts. That how we see the world will be shaped by the gospel, not all the noise around us. Guard it in your home if you have a family. Guard it in your church as the people of God. We're prone to wander. We're prone to water down the gospel. We're prone to apply it selectively in places that are easier for us to change and not apply it to other areas where change is more difficult. Or to apply it at varying levels across our life. Or this is my favorite, apply it to other people but not to ourselves. Might we guard the message? And then lastly, might we live free? There's only one audience to live before. Rest in that reality while you live in the power of Jesus. The world does not define you, child of God. Your spouse does not define you. Your kids do not define you. I do not define you. No pastor can define you. No teacher can define you. No co-worker can define you. No social media post can define you. Your definition is found in Jesus Christ. Live before Him. But to own this reality, we must own the truth of the gospel and guard the true gospel so that we can live free from all other opinions and noise and live 
before an audience of one, the fear of God. There's no other gospel but the gospel of Jesus. And embracing this truth is both the beginning of godly fear and the end of fear of everything else. Let's embrace that as the people of God. God, thank you for this letter to the churches at Galatia. It's relevant to us today. I can't make it relevant to everyone. I'm, I'm not that good of a speaker. But Holy Spirit, you are that good of an influencer of the hearts of your people. And so I pray that in this space, you will move in the hearts of your people and you will convict them in the very specific areas that you are calling for change. That you will encourage them in the very areas where maybe they're feeling inadequate or they're feeling um, unloved or unseen. That you will pick them up and empower them. And that the words of Paul to the church of Galatia will be your words today to them in this place for transformation and, and life change. So in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. And we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.